Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, plants make a lot of different compounds, and if you look across the diversity of the taxonomical landscape of plants, you find many diverse plants in unusual niches that must create compounds to ensure their survival, protect them from pests and predators, maybe even to entice a pollinator or someone to scatter the seeds or vegetative propagules. <laughs> Sounds good. So plants make all these compounds for lots of different reasons. People like coffee, tobacco, and other sundry products that uh, they find pleasant, that kind of thing. Flavors and aromas, these all come from these rare secondary metabolites. Sometimes rare, sometimes kind of abundant. I kind of misspoke there a little bit. I mean, linalool is off the charts in some fruits. <laughs> and a lot of them sound like tools that the Three Stooges left inside a, a patient when they were doctors. Linalool. Yeah. <laughs> all. Yeah. Anyway, um, today's guest is going to talk to us about compounds from the rainforest, in which these compounds, many of which are really uh, potentially toxic because 99% of the toxic compounds we consume come from plants, the dose makes the poison. And frequently, these Products that are naturally occurring do have introgressions with biology that can fit a therapeutic context. Our guest today is Lisa Conti. She's the founder, president, and CEO of Napo Pharmaceuticals, a Jaguar Health family company. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and speak about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice to talk to you too. I think this is a topic that we haven't touched on enough, uh, despite its potential uh interest among most people. So I guess your company is looking for therapeutic compounds in plants. And in the introduction, I talked about the idea that plants make lots of different secondary metabolites, lots of them toxic, but the dose makes the poison and that there's some sort of therapeutic range for many of these compounds. What is it about plants that makes them so attractive as a potential source for human therapeutics? Well, so you're you're exactly right. Plants make a whole diversity of compounds. So one of the attractive things about plants is it's yet another source where you'll see diversity in the compounds and the chemistry that is made that is different than a human could make in a lab, sometimes more complex than a human could make in a lab because they're being made from um, enzymes rather than man-made procedures. So for example, something like chiral centers is easier to have completed in a plant based on enzymatic action rather than in a synthetic lab. But for us, in addition to that, the other important thing is that we are following the traditional use of the plant. So looking for these compounds that are more likely to be safe and effective in man because they're coming from a plant that has been used traditionally in people for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Oh, okay. So you're actually visiting with uh, indigenous people and learning about what they've used for treatments and then kind of chasing down those a little bit to find out what is it about the active compounds in these specific plants? Is, is that the idea? So our process starts with Western trained 
physicians and ethnobotanists, botanists that are trained to look at how plants are used in our case medicinally. So two of our professionals really doing a consult, a professional consult, consult with a shaman or healer in rainforest areas, presenting case studies of symptoms in our patients at home. And do you have patients with a symptom like that, that you manage with plants in, in the rainforest? And then we do a prioritization process. We leave, bring those plants home and we look for the active ingredients. And what we are not constrained by is known mechanisms of action because we're looking for something that's affecting a symptom in a, in a whole organism. And it gives us the opportunity to come up with whole new ways of treating and potentially curing diseases by novel mechanisms of action. And, and that was our premise and our mission, our discovery process. And that's exactly what we've done. Yeah, I, I really like this. So is this partially based on the idea that you can go to a place like a rainforest, a diverse place where there's still indigenous folks who haven't been too disturbed from the outside, and that the plants that are there, they've created compounds to interact with biology for some reason, you know, maybe attracting a pollinator, maybe, you know, scattering seeds, who knows. But they've made this compound interact with biology so that maybe there is an actual interaction with biology that somebody discovered uh, by watching nature that now you're able to kind of repurpose in a therapeutic context. Is that kind of where we're going? That you're, yes, again, you're exactly right. You're really great with these questions. Although I would extend it and say in many cases, it's being used therapeutically in the rainforest. And so, for example, take something like diabetes, which has a symptom of sweet urine, elevated sugar in the urine. That is not constrained to just a Western disease. You do see that in, in remote areas of the rainforest as well. And that's often exactly as it's being described by shamans or healers. The patient has sweet urine or the ants run towards the urine of the patient. They're very weak all the time if they ever miss their, their planned treatment. And there you go. That's an exact that's sophisticated medicine. That's an exact diagnosis and a treatment that is personalized to that particular patient's situation and lifestyle. And I'll be a little bit of a devil's advocate because I always approach these things kind of skeptically in that there's so much false information out there about the effects of uh, you know different herbal remedies or whatever that really haven't been proven clinically that it kind of gives this a, a, a little bit of a bad bad name. But what are some good examples of compounds that have come from plants in this kind of context that have shown to have very strong therapeutic effects? Yeah, I, I know. I, I agree with you. It's very difficult in the plant-based medicine area. So I should have made the distinction right up front. We do all prescription-based drug discovery, development, and commercialization from plants that have been used traditionally. So demystifying the traditional use of the product and putting it through the Western medical FDA-approved drug development process. Um, so what's an example? My favorite example, of course, is our product that is approved, which is called Crofelomer, which is naturally derived, plant-based, sustainably harvested, organic, fair trade, and it is an FDA-approved drug right now under the trade name of Mitesi, and it's approved for the indication of non-infectious diarrhea in adults living with HIV AIDS on antiretroviral therapy. 
And we have completed now a phase three pivotal trial that is going to read out top line results in a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, before American Thanksgiving, to potentially expand the indication of the utilization of crofelomer for prophylaxis in all patients with solid tumors on targeted therapy with or without cytotoxic chemotherapy. So huge in terms of the number of patients with neglected need that could potentially benefit with success in the trial and with with success of having regulatory approval to expand the labeled indication of mitesi. Okay, so that's a really good example. So crofelomer is the is this one. And we'll touch on this a little bit more in a couple of minutes. What are some other ones? Like uh, I know Taxol always comes to mind. There you go. You're in the cancer area. Absolutely Taxol, um, which is now which was initially natural, then semi-synthetic. And now I believe it's completely synthetic or versions that are completely synthetic. I might be wrong, but I believe Taxotere is semi-synthetic. You have vincristine and vinblastine that are used for childhood leukemia. Those come from a plant from Madagascar. Uh, Digitalis, digoxin. So Digitalis, I believe, is the natural product. Digoxin is a synthetic version of that. Even something as common and what is generic now, metformin. Uh, interestingly, I was talking to the CEO of the company that commercializes that about, about I don't know, eight, nine years ago. And he didn't even realize that metformin, which is now synthetic, the, chemi- the, the chemical structure came from a natural source, came from a plant. So it's believed that somewhere between 20 and 40% of the prescription medicines that are on the market have some derivation initially from plant chemistry diversity. We know that natural products, maybe they have some effect or you can demonstrate some sort of therapeutic uh, use, some sort of clinical use. But how much is that a, a finish point versus a starting point where now scientists may modify that, uh, that compound either increase its half-life or improve its pharmacological fate or its bioavailability. So is, is it really just a starting point to start in the rainforest or is this something that the, the product that's there is purified and then that's what goes into the, into the bottle? <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to give you an answer as if I'm a lawyer, but I'm not a lawyer. It depends. So sometimes the, the natural compound, you know, from the natural source, is the drug, as is the case with crofelomer, um, and sometimes it is a starting point and it's the scaffolding of the chemistry diversity, and then you're exactly right. You may modify it to give it any sort of benefit for administration, for half-life, in some cases for patent life as well. Um, we have, interestingly, a, a joint venture that we have started with a, another company called Filament Health that has natural product chemistry capabilities. And we've devoted about 20% of our 2300 plant library to look at um, innovative psychoactives and psychedelics for potential neuro uh, neuroscience benefits, CNS benefit. And the mission of that joint venture, which is called Magdalena Biosciences, is to only have a plant-derived product, something that would be approved under botanical guidance by the FDA. But Jaguar, Napo, we are flexible depending which way the science pushes us to get the most safe and effective and innovative product for human use. 
And I guess the other question that comes to mind for me is, is do, are the plants that are in, you know, in the wild, like things that are in nature, are the products just purified from them or are they served as a basis for discovery? And then the compounds, I'm speaking really generally here, not about crophelomer or necessarily things in your pipeline, but um, in general, are these things then just synthetically created? Because I remember uh, speaking about vinblastine and vincristine years ago, where there are in, like, massive fields of periwinkle in Texas and other places. They'll, it'll take truckloads of this stuff to purify a few treatments. And so is it really just a synthetic thing that they can do in fermenters now, or is this stuff really purified directly from plants? Yeah, the, the answer to that question is all of the above. I feel like I'm taking SATS, all of the above. Um, and if you have a, a situation like Taxol, which is very, very small concentration in trees that I believe took decades to grow, then there's a lot of incentive to figure out a semi-synthetic and ultimately synthetic way to get something that's going to have the same therapeutic benefit. If you have chemistry that is working beautifully in its natural state, doesn't require any modification for pharmacodynamics um, or, or safety or efficacy, then do you have a nice sustainable supply situation? And in, in some cases, the sustainable supply situation is another beautiful collateral benefit of creating employment and industry in, you know, let's say a, a remote rainforest area. So it can become a nice economic product. So all of the above, totally driven by the chemistry and the biology of the plant. And this is another one, because I know somebody is out there thinking this, and they're saying, well, we don't want to support this biopiracy, right? You hear this term come up now and then. And when you have Western interest in moving into uh, areas of indigenous folks and, uh, and, and maybe borrowing from their knowledge, some folks rubs them the wrong way. So how do you protect the, uh, I, I guess, the interests of the people where these remedies originate and really build them into part of the solution? Oh, such, a, such an important topic. So I'll talk about the way we did it. Um, we The first day that we started this company effort, which we just discussed was 34 years ago, we established a nonprofit called the Healing Forest Conservancy that recognizes the intellectual contribution of indigenous knowledge into what we're doing. And so all the communities and cultures that we've worked with, which is like 70 different cultures over the 30 years, 20 plus different countries, um, they all will benefit as the company becomes profitable to their particular contribution, regardless of whether it led to something that is a commercial product and financially viable at Jaguar, Napo, or not, because the probability of any particular plant lead leading to an FDA approved product is really quite small, but the probability of the company being successful and having an FDA approved product, which we do have from traditional knowledge, is of course much higher. So everybody who participated um, gets to benefit through the Healing Forest Conservancy. And so what that meant, if, it's, if we went into a particular community and they said, yeah, uh-uh. if we work with you and our knowledge leads to something, we specifically want to benefit, we specifically want a royalty, we couldn't work in that situation because it would throw off the 
the benefit sharing that we had as our entire mission and all the different partners that we have in the rainforest area. So there are tenants that are set up by the Convention on Biological Diversity, which the U.S. has not ratified, but nevertheless, we follow those tenants and we go beyond them. Well, very nice. I guess the flip side of that is the regulatory side. Is there any special consideration that since these are natural products that have been used for a long time, that uh, maybe there's a different way to assess them for safety and efficacy, or is the process just as rigorous or maybe more rigorous? Once again, all of the above. (laughs) So (laughs) there can be a, a product that there can be chemistry, you know, a chemical compound that you can draw a structure of that comes from a plant that either in its natural state or modified, as we discussed, you know, being the chemical scaffolding, and then you hang this, that, or the other thing on it. And that will go through as a drug, just like a drug that any drug that's made in the laboratory or a drug that comes from a, a bacterial fermented source, whatever. There is also a pathway for FDA approved drugs, FDA approved drugs under botanical guidance. And under botanical guidance, it can be a little bit more of a gamish, a little bit more of how the plant is used in its natural state in what, you know, in traditional use. And if you can document enough of that traditional use, you can have the opportunity to bypass some of the traditional preclinical animal and toxicity work necessary to go into initial human clinical trials to ultimately gain the safety and the efficacy and the manufacturing quality to get approved as a drug under botanical guidance. So there's two different pathways, depending on whether you're going for something that is basically chemistry that happened to come from a plant versus a plant medicine. Very good. That's that's really interesting that there's different ways to do that. I think that's really cool. So we're speaking with Lisa Conti. She's the founder, president, and CEO of Napo Pharmaceuticals, a Jaguar Health family company, J-A-G-X on your ticker, right? You got it. Exactly. Yeah, I saw that on the website. Uh, this is Collabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra, and we're talking with Lisa Conti. She's the founder, president, and CEO of Napo Pharmaceuticals, a Jaguar health family company, And we're talking about natural products and natural products as they're applied as therapeutics. These are uh, legitimate pharmaceutical compounds, uh, not the stuff they're selling you in a little pouch in the gas station or the guy on the corner. Uh, This is um, uh, legitimate stuff that goes through FDA regulation and originates through indigenous knowledge. And sometimes, you know, people, red flags go off when they hear that for lots of reasons. But we're talking about the ways in which they ensure that these are working correctly and as well protect the interests of indigenous people who help to uh, get them going on the right path. So we'll start digging into the pipeline a touch here. 
So tell me a little bit more about crofelomer. You uh, mentioned it before. Uh, how exactly does it work and what's its application for different indications? Oh, thank you for asking that. So we're very, very pleased and very proud that our, our first compound that got approved is crofelomer. It's under the brand name Mitesi now. And I think I um, indicated earlier the indication is in HIV patients. And it it's interesting. It's a total paradigm shifting approach to managing gastrointestinal functioning function to managing diarrhea. So when we think about antidiarrheals, we think about going to the pharmacy, OTC, getting Imodium or perhaps loperamide. These are opioids. They work by the mechanism of constipation. And so then there's, there's all the risk of being opioids. These are now behind-the-counter products, um, sort of like pseudofedrin. And um, they also are not labeled to be taken on a chronic basis. And as you can imagine, you can't be chronically constipated. What crofelomer does is it's a, a chloride ion channel modulator or normalizer. And that's the key word. Crofelomer normalizes gut function regardless of what the cause is. So it normalizes water flow and mitigates dehydration without interfering with normal gut function. So normal peristaltic activity, which is needed to move things through your gut for appropriate secretion and absorption isn't interfered with. So we don't have the risk of constipation, for example, that you would have with an opioid. Also, what we have decided to do is focus on complicated chronically ill patients. So the current indication is in people living with HIV AIDS. And we've just completed a phase three trial that we have been working on for six years. So it's very exciting. We're going to have that top line data before Thanksgiving. So in the next couple of weeks to expand the indication to prophylaxis of cancer therapy related diarrhea in all solid tumor patients on targeted therapies, regardless of whether they're on cytotoxic chemotherapy or not. Another situation where you have typically chronically ill patients, complicated patients, you don't want to interfere with their life-saving medicine. In fact, you want to give them the opportunity to normalize their gut function so they can be adhering to their life-saving therapy. And in fact, then you're having an impact not only on their gut function, but on the outcome of their cancer treatment as well. And that's the opportunity that our discovery process by following the management of symptoms in the field gave us the opportunity to discover a product that was working by a whole new mechanism of action, different than anything else out there that we have been able to find in development, in the pipeline, anywhere in pharma- in, the, in the pharmaceutical industry right now. Yeah, so this works by changing the ionic balance of the environment, the lumen of the large intestine. Is it just that it's, is, is that where we're at here? So it normalizes the ion balance. So to give you a little bit into the weeds here, what happens with watery or secretory diarrhea is you have um, something that causes a disruption to these chloride channels that are in your gut. They're called calcium-activated chloride channels or uh, CFTR, cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator, Mm -hmm. in your gut. So there's a whole bunch of different pathways that can be watery diarrhea, but the common last step, and that's sort of the holy grail, the common last step is the active secretion of excess chloride ions through these channels into the gut, and then that's like salt. 
So water comes in based on osmosis and there your watery diarrhea goes out. So what crophelomer does is it works locally in the gut. It's a pill, you take it orally, goes into the gut and it normalizes that active secretion of chloride ions. If you don't have any active secretion, if you're not abnormal, if your gut is perfectly functioning normally, crophelomer won't do anything, it goes in and it goes out. But it, it normalizes the overactive chloride ion secretion and therefore specifically is mitigating the water coming in, the water loss, and bringing the gut function back to normal. And it's not, crophelomer is not systemically absorbed. So you don't have any first pass effect. You don't have secondary metabolites. You don't have drug-drug interactions. So safety is a huge, huge hallmark of the product. Again, very important when we're talking about complicated patients, cancer patients, patients living with HIV, AIDS, who are on chronic therapy, and you don't want to interfere with the other life-saving therapeutics that are moving forward. Um, and also it's not an antibiotic, so we don't have to worry about resistance. We haven't seen any tolerance. You know, what we've heard from patients, we're, we really embrace patient advocacy in both cancer and HIV, is if they're having a side effect of their cancer therapy, they don't want to take something for that where, again, you have to manage the side effect of that. It just sort of spirals out of control. So if, for example, you're having diarrhea and you took an opioid and then you have constipation, then you have to address the constipation. And so where does it stop? No, I understand that point. And I think the other one that you made here that maybe should be underscored a touch is that you're, by placing this into the context of, of the digestive system, not being systemic, you're talking about compromised populations here who are chronically medicated on multiple levels. And so the idea of l less opportunity for drug-drug interaction is another very strong suit of this approach. Absolutely, absolutely. What was very interesting as we are expanding in the indication of crophelomer, and it's approved under the name Mitesi now, I should always say what the full label is um, for non-infectious diarrhea in adults living with HIV AIDS on antiretroviral therapy. So that's the current label. As we're looking to expand it into the cancer indication, there are about 25 different targeted therapies that are included in the enrollment criteria in our clinical trial, not to mention all the underlying cytotoxic chemotherapeutic agents. And the FDA did not require us to do any drug-drug interaction because of the safety and the lack of interaction that has already been shown in the HIV-approved indication. Well, here's the fun part. What, what was the discovery story? How did somebody figure out that this did what it does? And then how did you figure out that someone knew that this does what it does? Oh, this is, I love this story. Um, so this is a plant, it's called, the Latin name is Croton Leclery. The traditional name, if you go down to a market in the rainforest, it would be, is Dragon's Blood. And it sort of looks like a tree is bleeding. It's it's the latex in the bark of the tree. So if you hit it with a machete, it looks like the, the tree is bleeding. I don't know where the dragon part comes from. And it is used traditionally for, for many of things. But one of the things that it's used for is diarrhea and cholera outbreaks in rainforest areas. But it doesn't have a great traditional record there. It's utilized, but not fabulously. When we 
brought it back to the laboratories and then were able to identify the active ingredient crophelomer, which is the active ingredient in, in mitesi, um, which we already discussed is not, doesn't have the systemic exposure. So the dragon's blood does have some stuff in the gamish, in the plant gamish, that does get into the bloodstream, has some toxicity, and limits how much of the dragon blood you can take. But when we purify it to crophelomer, we are not limited by that type of systemic exposure toxicity. So we can dose to the optimal level to get the antidiarrheal effect, to get the normalizing gut, func gut functioning effect that we are looking for. So it's a situation where we started with traditional knowledge, brought it here, demystified, and can bring it back in a safer, more effective way based on the traditional knowledge in the first place to the, the, the source of the medicine. And the other part that came up here, you mentioned first that it was used for a non-infectious HIV, uh, non-infectious uh, diarrhea, where not infectious, yeah, non-infectious, where you have uh, from HIV treatment that's going on, and now you're getting it approved for cancer cancer chemotherapy. But why does it have to undergo separate testing in each one? Is it purely because there are different populations with different problems that that they'll have different degrees of efficacy? The, the real reason is because that's what the FDA is requiring of us. So they're requiring us to go patient population by patient population. And, you know, eventually I, I would like to have so much data and so many approvals behind us that we could be broadly approved for anybody who's dealing with secretory diarrhea, because as you slice and dice these populations, it, it can almost become endless, you know, side effects of antibiotics, side effect of, of diabetes products. Um, but the, some, one of the things that you mentioned, so the current approval is in non-infectious diarrhea, people living with HIV AIDS. We do have published clinical data in infectious diarrhea. We have not pursued that as in, there's just so many things a small company can do. So we haven't pursued that all the way to the point of clinical approval. One of the reasons why it's labeled non-infectious in people living with HIV AIDS is so that the treating physician does rule out any infectious agent that perhaps should be addressed with an anti-infective, an antibiotic, or or whatever. I presume that is the, the reason why. Um, and so we have prioritized those patients where there are completely neglected needs, and now is the time. And, and cancer is just so amazing right now with the five dozen or so targeted therapies that really allow people to live with cancer as a, a chronic situation. And what we've seen is the emergence of the metastatic patient voice. The metastatic patient used to die relatively quickly. And I'm now on a listening campaign tour of multiple patient advocacy groups, many of which are metastatic patients from lung cancer, from, from breast cancer, you know, from all, all sorts of different walks of life because they're living longer but they don't just want to exist. So how wonderful the survival outcomes, but can these quality of life issues be made to be um, get them back to their normal life? And one of the most insulting terms to patients that you'll see almost in all scientific papers is here were the tolerable toxicities. And, you know, tolerable to whom? 
you know, and then, and there's so many. So if you're a cancer patient and you're on chronic therapy, you may be dealing with neuropathy and nausea and diarrhea and fatigue and itching and rashes and emotional issues. Um, and one of the patients referred to it as the pebble in the shoe. You know, could you deal with a pebble in your shoe for a day, for a week? Sure. But for the rest of your life? And what if there's 12 different pebbles out there? And that's really our mission at this point, and particularly in the cancer area, to raise the importance of quality of life to address that for patient dignity, for patient comfort, and then the crossover effect it has to allowing the patient to maintain and adhere to their disease therapy so they have a better outcome. And you know what? When you're taking care of all the side effects, you're also giving a positive financial impact to the healthcare system because the patient isn't going into the hospital to get rehydrated or going on another medication for their neuropathy. So the hope is to raise the the education and awareness and noise around all quality of life issues. And hopefully with a successful clinical trial on our, our cancer trial and regulatory approval, we will be able to provide a solution and pro- prophylaxis to one of those issues, which would be the diarrhea. I, re- I really appreciate that last sentiment here, because you, you if you think about all of that folks are living longer. Um, they are, are living with chronic cancer, manage, being able to manage it. It's been a theme that's come up throughout the podcast series uh, now in 420 some episodes where uh, new opportunities, especially with mRNA therapies and other things that are coming, will allow people to essentially live with the problem without it getting worse, without it being life-threatening. And with that, having to manage some of the symptoms. And it sounds like uh, that this is really a part of that. The other big question is, what other products are currently in the pipeline? And what are some of the other uh, other indications that you're hoping to solve? Oh, okay. Thank you for asking that. So there are so many other indications for profelomer. And as I said, we're a little company, so we sort of we pick them off like in twosies. I can do more than one at a time, but sort of can't do more than two at a time. And so the other one that we have going on right now is for intestinal, it's rare disease, intestinal failure associated with short bowel syndrome and with pediatric congenital diarrheal diseases. So these are patients intestinal failure that end up living on parenteral nutrition, often for 20 hours a day, seven days a week. So a catastrophic healthcare situation. So they're getting um, IV nutrition, all sorts of complications associated with it, very expensive anywhere from a half a million dollars to a million dollars a year with the, with patients who are dealing with complications, high morbidity, high mortality, high expense, um, and often activated patient support groups because in each case we do have orphan drug designation for short bowel syndrome, intestinal failure, and a congenital diarrheal disorder specifically called MVID. So what Crofelomer does in this situation is our, our guts are normally secreting and absorbing, secreting and absorbing to get to the nutrients of life, your food, your proteins, your carbs, your vitamins, your your minerals, etc. And when you have either a short gut, short bowel syndrome, or a non-functioning gut, could be completely intact, but it's non-functioning, you don't, you're not absorbing the nutrients of life, or you don't have enough surface area, you don't have enough real estate to absorb the nutrients of life. 
And what crofelomer can do as an anti-secretory, so that normalization of chloride ion flow that I mentioned is an anti-secretory effect. We can slow down the secretions, hopefully this is the premise, so that the patient has enough time to absorb their own nutrients of life. And the goal is to get to 15 to 20% reduction in their need for parenteral um, nutrition, which is an already accepted regulatory endpoint, as well as bring down overall stool volume and, and hopefully even get to better stool formation. Because you, you can imagine in a short bowel syndrome patient, what goes in goes right out. And of course, we'll always be focused on collecting quality of life data as well. So we have six different initiatives going on because these are rare diseases in three different continents. Um, some are investigator-initiated efforts, and um, MVID, which is this rare congenital disorder, is under an IND here in the United States, which will expand globally, looking to have the first proof-of-concept data published just around the end of the year, the beginning of 2024. And what we have found is that in Europe, there's an opportunity to get product to patients Well, the indication is still going under development under an early access patient program that does not exist in the United States. So because of that, to address patient needs, we've put a footprint in Europe as well so we can take advantage of that, hopefully with clinical success in 2024. So right now, what's the uh, standard of care for someone with short bowel syndrome or intestinal failure? Oh, so oh, this is a fascinating situation and so catastrophic for the patient. So the standard of care is parental nutrition. For short bowel syndrome, again, a normal gut is about five feet. A short bowel could be as short as 30 centimeters. There is a product approved, which is a GLP-2 analog, which is essentially a growth hormone approach. So what the product does is it grows the gut a little bit such that there's a little bit more real estate, a little bit more surface area for absorption of the nutrients of life. And the regulatory endpoint is the reduction of the need for parental nutrition by about 15 to 20%. It is not considered standard of care. And everything other than crofelomer that is in the pipeline is a growth hormone approach. And so the reason why it's not standard of care is there are some toxicities, cardiovascular, et cetera, but also can't be used in a patient who has cancer or any sort of risk of abnormal growth because you don't want to enhance that growth. And when you think about the patients that I mentioned, the MVID, the congenital diarrheal disease, those who have a fully intact gut but is just not functioning, a growth hormone isn't going to do anything. So those patients have nothing in the pipeline for their treatment. And they're, you know, living with standard of care, parental nutrition, and, and all the toxicities and interruption of life and quality of life associated with that. And since we're on the topic of standard of care, earlier we talked about cancer therapies and folks who have uh, diarrhea because of that. Uh, what is the current standard of care there? So because... Um, we're talking about a chronic situation. And remember the paradigm shifting approach, the safe approach of normalizing um, chloride ion flow with crofelomer. What's out there now is when patients are on therapies that are causing diarrhea or at risk of causing diarrhea, targeted therapies, they either go off that therapy or they go to a subtherapeutic dose or they start at a subtherapeutic dose. They might 
pair it with an, uh, with an opioid for a short period of time, a terrible situation when you're trying to focus on the outcome of the cancer treatment. So there is no intervention standard of care that has been studied specifically and it is a mechanism that is effective in this patient population. And most, if not all, of the five dozen or so targeted therapies that I mentioned cause diarrhea by this chloride channel ion mediated mechanism of action. So the name of our trial is on target and we, we feel like our mechanism is on target to address the, the way to optimize these amazing breakthroughs in cancer care and keep patients on them. Well, Lisa Conti, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. This was really an interesting area that we haven't covered before. And I hope that as breakthroughs occur and as approvals rain down upon you, uh, you'll join us again and tell us more about the exciting things that are happening. Absolutely. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your interest and thank you for inviting me. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. The ideas of harvesting new therapies from existing plants that are present on the planet, but just haven't been discovered yet, uh, seem to be a really exciting and possibly ripe area for discovery. And leaning on indigenous knowledge can have those opportunities once they're vetted through a clinical pipeline. So tell a friend about this, especially someone you know who may be suffering from complications from HIV therapies or cancer therapies. Uh, This may be something that can help improve their quality of life. Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.